Hello, and welcome to the Burning Castle podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Each episode, I speak with a changemaker learning to unlock the creative potential of a world caught in chaos. These are the artists, actors, performers, musicians, designers, thinkers, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, activists, chefs, and countless others creating new paths amid crumbling institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Today I'm speaking with not one, not two, but three people, all of whom are working together to build AI-based medical imaging company, Foxel. Co-founder Natasha Leporé has a BSc in physics and mathematics from the University of Montreal, a master's in applied math from Cambridge, and just in case you thought I was done, a PhD in theoretical physics from Harvard that deals with quantum chaos in quantum billiards living on the plane and the pseudosphere. In addition to being co-founder of Voxel, Natasha is currently assistant professor in radiology at the University of Southern California and at Children's Hospital, Los Angeles. Narika Gajaweli holds a PhD in biomedical engineering from the Viterbi School of Engineering at the U- University of Southern California with expertise in medical image analysis. She's also a co-founder of Voxel. And Justin Lowe, who is Voxel's head of medical technology, is a clinical research assistant at Children's Hospital who earned his MD from UT Health San Antonio and a master's from USC in healthcare administration and management. These are clearly heavy hitters and serious people. But what you learn from the interview is that aside from being exceptionally nice and people who quite lightly rest on their laurels, if at all, they have all harnessed their creative impulses in different ways to build a new diagnostic technology that might unlock enormous potential for medicine and for us all. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi. Hi, Natasha. How are you? Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. And we have Justin also, who's our MD in the startup. I I invited him. I hope that's okay. Sure. I mean, he can decide whether he should talk or not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, so give me, so give me a little background about Justin, or Justin. You could do it yourself since you're here. Sure. So I graduated from medical school in 2019. Mm Instead of going into residency, I decided to shift my um, into research. So I started at CHLA with uh, one of my mentors here, Dr. Wong. And ever since then, I've been researching at CHLA. Right now, my current project is with the NIH, where we're trying to discern secondary malignancy um, probabilities based on the type of radiation given either through Photons, which are just electrons or proton therapies. So that's the cool. one working right now. Sounds ex- interesting and exciting. Yeah, it is. Um, <clears throat> a lot of data. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Oh, wait, let me turn off the. So, um, Natasha and Justin, and for, for everybody else out there, it's Natasha Lepore and Justin Lowe. And I hope I did justice to both of your names. Uh, and the reason I wanted you guys to come and talk to us, um, because it's a little bit of a different framing here. So for people out there, um, Natasha is the founder, co-founder, and Justin is a researcher for a really interesting new, um, and it sounds like fast advancing startup in the biotech space. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, but it's a little bit different because I'm usually speaking with people that are somehow tied to um, arts, letters, design, um, and entrepreneurship. But not as often do I have someone, people or a group of people coming from really the sciences, which is a very interesting thing to talk about today, which is on, on the one sense, what's what you are actually doing and how it's being driven by a lot of the forces that are affecting the rest of us. Um, but also to hear about what it means for you guys in terms of this a creative process that you're running and developing. So before we further ourselves into that conversation, give us an introduction, um, just a little snippet of background. Um, so, and let us all hear your, your great voices. Yeah, of course. And and just before before I introduce myself, I just wanted to say I, I, I'm glad that 
you're inviting us also because uh, of this creative aspect of things. I think sometimes people overlook the fact that science also has a huge creative aspect to it. And um, I'm glad that you're that you're asking that you'll be asking us questions in that direction. Cool. Uh, so so uh, yeah. So I'm Natasha Lepore. I my um, primary job is at uh, the University of Southern California and Children's Hospital Los Angeles. I'm a scientist uh, working on brain brain MRI, to trying to write software to better understand um, brain how the brain works, uh, particularly in children. And um, and a few years ago, we started Voxel Healthcare, our startup, uh, because we saw that we were developing a lot of software in the lab, and it, it was hard to uh, to get it to to the clinic, and we wanted to start actually having it be useful. To, to actually help children and and sort of get get them to uh, you know improve their lives and and so we went to see the head of radiology and said so what what would be useful for you to what kind of software would you like to have in your clinic and and that's how we started this the company. Um, very interesting. Obviously, we're going to come back to that because there's a lot there, and I, I want to hear a lot more. Um, but before we do, let's hear just from Justin um, how you got to where you are and what you're doing there. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Actually, it's this is going to be interesting. Um, not a lot of people focus on the creative aspect of medicine or science in general. So it's nice to have that kind of conversation. Thank you. But for this, yes. Um, so I'm Justin Lowe. I graduated medical school in 2019. So I do have an MD after my name. However, instead of going into residency, I decided to go straight into research. And through my mentor here, uh, Dr. Kenneth Wong, I went into the radiation oncology department at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. So we do a lot of different things here. Mainly we treat cancers of kids. And, and for the past two and a half years, I've been here doing research with him. Uh, and the research varies. We don't always just look at data. Some of our research is about kids and how they react to their treatments or what their um, kind of the when they go through the treatment how do they feel about it and what's the end result for them so we do a lot of like these quality type of improvement projects and things like that of course research does need to be backed up by data so we do collect a lot of the data too um, and then people think data is boring and you know you just have a whole bunch of numbers and you know the lines of text but uh, behind that actually we do a lot of kind of fitting things into categories so that it makes sense to people mm -hmm. right and a lot of times people don't understand that you know things you read uh papers and journals and things like that that come out they're, they're crafted we mm -hmm. write um right. you know we write things and a lot of times we do kind of create a story right in the papers we write Right, um, which is which is a great. That's a very interesting um, point. I think it's something that we're also starting socially to pay attention to now because there's so much debate about um, what is considered true and false, what is what is reality, what is fact, and people are starting to look at um, at how academic and scientific papers are built, constructed, where the consensus comes from, and how the science writing happens about these things as well, how they're communicated to the public. So um, before we go further, though, I see we have uh, Nearika waiting to join us. So we'll say hello to her and let her introduce herself as well. Um, can, I, can, I, can I though interrupt real quick, Justin, you, you might also want to give your uh, role in Voxel Healthcare as well. Oh yeah. And so, yeah, um, just as the quick addition to that. So a few months ago, I was introduced to Voxel Healthcare, mm -hmm. and um, I, I I have a, so being in radiation oncology, especially, we use a lot of technology. So with a technology background, I came in and um, with my expertise and as well as the MD. So I am now head of the medical technology at Voxel. Good to know. And um, we have Nearika as well, right? Are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Okay, so great to meet you. So we, so Natasha and Justin just gave us a little bit of a background, a, a short snippet about themselves. And you are co-founder of Voxel Healthcare, as I believe. 
Um, and you're you're doing interesting things with with uh, the rest of the team. So tell us who you are and where you are and uh, where you came from. What was the track that you were on to get there? So um, I am I'm from um, you know originally from India, uh, but I was doing my PhD with Natasha, um, mm-hmm. and uh, um, like the way I get I guess I got into this is because. Um, you know, I've, I've sort of always been interested in like the business side of things, and um, uh, there was a there was a program called iCore that was going on, and Natasha was taking part in it. I, I didn't know that she was, but I knew about iCore, and uh, we happened to be talking one day, and then I found out, and so um, you know, I joined um, I joined the group to to do the iCore. Like basically, it's a customer discovery program. Uh, I don't know if Natasha talked about it earlier, but the customer discovery program where we go and talk to a lot of people in the, you know, in the healthcare field, uh, in, especially in our case in radiology. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, we, we did that process and then, um, you know, we, we saw that there was a real need and that's how um, I sort of came to be the co-founder of Oxel. Yeah. And my, and my, uh, uh, you know, I was working on uh, understanding and analyzing uh, pediatric brain MRI data. So, Sort of fit in very well with what I was doing, and you know the product was a, a natural extension of mine. Mm-hmm. So um, thank you very much for that. Um, I, I want to kind of come back to the beginning, or to before the beginning, which is to for us to understand uh, what you guys are creating and why it's so important. And the broad outlines for people is that this is an imaging technology, is a diagnostic tool that helps people see the brain in better and different ways. And I think as well for a particular and very important part of our population, um, but I want you guys to tell us, uh, Natasha, maybe you can help, um, just give us the the understanding of what it is, why it can create so much change, and um, and how you got to it. Yeah. So so uh, when we started this, in in the land, landscape is a little bit different right now. But but when we when we started this, radiologists really didn't have very many software tools at all to uh, to look at to look at images. So so what a radiologist does all day. Uh, you know, someone comes in and needs an MRI, they come in, uh, then the, the image is sent to a radiologist for them to look at the image. And, and uh, the radiologist has to flip through the image, slice by slice of the image, and, and sort of try to reconstruct in 3D what's happening uh, on there. They, it's sort of a lot of times looking for a needle in a haystack. They have to like really try to find where there's an abnormality. They, they're guided by notes from the clinician, but it's not always exactly clear what, what's what's going on, um, and so they had to they have to reconstruct all of this in their head. They they flip through all of these images, of course. Like if they get tired, it's harder, and and depends also on on their background and experience. It, it's a very specialized field. So, for example, a radiologist that looks at children's data is not the same as one who looks at adult data. So so all of these things come into play, and and. You know, we 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 and and I say we, but scientists in in our field in general have been have been looking at this and saying, well, we we should be able to help them, but uh, like give them more information. And and so what a, a whole bunch of startups and and also some of the big companies have started to try to write software for for radiologists to just give them more information and help them do their jobs. Um, you know, help help facilitate their jobs because it's it's a very difficult. Mm-hmm job and uh and so we so we're um we saw a need particularly for children uh look to children's brains and give the give the radiologists more information on what what is happening in in the children's in children's brain images so that that's how um I forget your exact question. So, but well, well, yeah, no, that's great. That, it's very helpful. Um, and I'll say as the, I, as the son of a radiologist, as my dad is a um, radiologist who's, you know, he's got a, you know, 30 to 40 years as a practicing clinician. Um, it's something that was always very interesting to me. You know, I, I grew up with um, x-ray slides around the house with my dad showing us what an ultrasound machine is, what an MRI machine is. Um, and those being things that were not experienced for me personally as a patient, but as an observer, as someone who's kind of in between. So it's a really interesting thing. And of course, 
it is sort of um, the the fountainhead of any medical process is di- diagnosis, right? We, we, you need to know what the problem is. And if you can't understand what the problem is, you cannot treat it. And I think that's what so many people bump up against um, as patients and probably as clinicians or healthcare providers, which is that so often we don't know what it is. And treatment is used as, a, as kind of an exploratory device to try to figure it out, which is a weird idea. But I, coming back to imaging the brain, the, that's essentially what we're talking about here, is that getting a, an ability to map structures in real time in the brain of a living person. Um, and my question for you guys is, t- when you compare the model, the approach that we currently use, which is radiologists going slide by slide through the MRI to it mentally try to reconstruct what's happening. When we compare that model with the potential for V1 of what you guys are doing with the kinds of technology that you guys are using have become well entrenched in medicine. What do you think is the difference in, you know, is it an order of magnitude, more information or better information, or are we even, is it less or is it more, how much better can the diagnostics become with that kind of technology in the world? Right. So a lot, uh, the exact number kind of depends on what, what disorder you're looking at more specifically. It depends on a whole lot of different things. So to, it's hard to give you an actual number because it really varies a lot. And, and, and there's also a lot of um, hidden things. For example, how often do radiologists misdiagnose, for example? And that, that we know that that depends on institutions. It depends on which disorder. It depends on the particular radiologist. Uh, but it's not information that's necessarily out there for obvious reasons. Um, the, and then the other thing is, I mean, a lot of times it's not misdiagnosis. It's just that the information is very, very hard to get and, and it might not be possible to get just by looking at an image. And so and so there, there's those two things. So so in terms of the exact how much does it help, an actual number is very difficult, but uh, we, we know it helps. We know we, we have seen um, that, that, you know, we, there's there's a whole bunch of people in our field who have been working with radiologists and testing to see whether they they see things better with software, whether, you know, how much it improves, which software uh, improve what, what they do. And, and so it's very clear that that it's information that that they need. And, and they they have been telling us also which which pieces of information they need. And that, again, depends on the disease. It depends on the specialty. It depends on all sorts of different things. But um, they've also told us that that they would love to have that extra information. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes sense. Um, and I think it's, um, you know, again, that diagnostic layer of the process because it, 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 everything else depends on that. And, and also in terms of, um, not just misdiagnosis, but, but mistreatment. So if you're, if you people are treating things that are not actually what's going on, um, you know, what, I, what I think the question that I want to hear more about is how you guys got to this. You know, you, you're coming from, from your bio, I read a background in theoretical physics, which seems like a fairly big jump from theoretical physics. Um, and I, I kind of actually want to read aloud some of the stuff that you were working on dealing with because it sounds so cool and I, and I have no idea what it means whatsoever. So you, you have a bio here saying you're a PhD in theoretical physics, uh, Natasha from Harvard, and you deal with quantum chaos and quantum billiards living on the plane and the pseudosphere. So, <laughs> the, so whatever that means, I don't think we need to get into that in particular, but I want to want to show people is that that's a hardcore theoretical physics sounding idea. I mean, I can say that I studied the, the, um, history, philosophy, and so- sociology of science in college. It was one of my two majors, and all this stuff is interesting to me. And also, how you know this jump between theoretical physics and innovation that has been so important to the history of science and the history of technology as well. So, how did you make the, that leap personally? Oh God, uh, that, that's a very long story. So, so when I when I finished my PhD. Um, I, I took I took about a year to try to figure out what exactly I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to stay in physics. I, I felt like I wanted to do something, like you said, that was more on the innovation side. So physics is very innovative, of course, but 
you always feel like things are going to actually trickle into um, the real world in maybe 20 years, 30 years. And, and what I wanted was something that would be immediately or feel more immediately applicable to, to health, to, to something. And, and so I spent, yeah, I spent about a year like sort of talking to people in a bunch of different fields and, and looking through websites and of all sorts of different things. And, and, and uh, one of the things that really um, the brain just ended up seeming like a very important uh, problem because I, I felt, you know, there's a, so many people were struggling with mental health and with all sorts of different things that, that, that make, that make it so that they can't um, live, you know, they, they can't, they can't live their lives as well as they would like to. And, 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 uh, and I thought, well, if, you know, if really, if we could help people, um, just, just feel, feel better (laughs) in, in a way that would make them be able to, to, to feel like they could reach their full potential, that they could just, you know, lead, lead lives that, that they, they were happier with, I guess that just seemed like such an important problem to solve. And that, that's how, I mean, it's the very, very short version of a much longer story, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you essentially went out in search of a problem in search of a good problem, um, which is an interesting approach. Yeah. I feel like people, they either fall backwards into their problems or they can't get rid of their problems, but very, you know, that may be one of these, like they say about firefighters who are the ones running towards the danger, you know, scientists run towards the problem, um, like writers as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, from, from the point of view of uh, Justin and Nerika, you know, you guys are both respectively coming from medical and I think um, in Nerika's case, an engineering background, which kind of presents that full complement here of the, you know, there's the theoretical, the engineering and the medical, um, you know, each from your perspective, how and why did you get to this particular problem? Did you seek out the problem? Um, and if not, what was your way? And, and um, what does it mean for you creatively? I think we'll, we'll start with uh, um, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, I've never thought of it, thought about it that way. But I think for me, like what led me to this problem was really um, doing the whole um, um, customer discovery process. Um, you know, uh, like that, that I think that was where we identified the need, you know, like that this was something that was going to be useful. Um, yeah, and 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 what it means creatively for me, I think, is that um, you you know in in, in research, uh, you know, when you're doing your PhD, you're doing research. You sort of are doing everything in a lab alone, um, and a lot of times, like whatever you do, software, you know, anything that you develop doesn't see the light of day. I mean, it's used in research a little bit, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, to be able to productize this and and hope to see that it actually is being used is is pretty powerful for me. Um, yeah, I worked in um, I, I previously worked in a consumer electronics company for a little while, and I think that was one of the satisfaction that is one of the very satisfying things. You know that you you were working on something that is actually being used, um, and for me, I think that fulfills. I don't know if it's the creative side of me, but like I, that fulfills my, you know, I don't know, want to contribute. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, definitely, mm-hmm. it's uh, you know creating a connection with with a user, with an audience, with a with a human. Um, mm-hmm. it, I think that is essentially what it is. But um, you know, thank you for sharing that. And and Justin, in your case, um, what brought you to this particular problem or yeah, so solution? I was introduced to Voxel um, because they were developing software, basically AI for imaging and what we do in radiation oncology is we actually to put it very simply we draw uh, we basically paint structures with these images as we go through for our treatments because there are structures well the main one is we want to treat the tumor with radiation and we need to know where the tumor is and the computer can't do that on its own we have to go in and say we basically have to go in and tell the computer this is what we're trying to treat alongside that, we try to avoid normal brain structures. You don't just want to give the entire brain radiation if you can avoid those kinds of things, because, you know, kids are developing still, they're going to have problems if you give them those kinds of radiation. 
So the thing is, is that to draw these things, it takes time and it takes a lot of effort to do these. So having a software that can do this for us and then also give you information, because a lot of times I think, I, you know, I don't know if your dad ever said this, but there's a lot of, you have to know what's normal, but normal varies so much. And there's never really a good baseline to like compare to. And, you know, with a software like this, the software kind of gives you that baseline, right? It's like, okay, here's the baseline. We can compare things now because it, it, it can do that. It can see like a whole bunch of different normal things and then compare whatever is being scanned. So, and then, you know, prior to actually joining the voxel, I was coding for scripting things so that we could, you know, try and improve our workflow here. And I think there's two parts to that and on a creative side, because when you're coding, your code has to be like elegant, right? You want it to work efficiently. So it doesn't bog down your systems you're running on and you want it to be like, it really, you want it to be pretty in a way too, because you, people who, who use a program are like, oh my God, I have to like click so many different things. They're, they're not going to like it, but you know, like an iPhone, you just click an app and it's really nice and beautiful. People love those kinds of things. So that's where like our creative aspect comes from, you know, designing those things. And then even, you know, like, cause coding is a language, right? And certain languages are written. Some people are like, oh, I love how, French speak or something like that. And so with the codes too, you know, the way you write it, the, the elegancy behind those kinds of, I've seen plenty of code there. I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. And then other code, I'm like, wow, this is so beautifully written and easy to follow. Mm-hmm. And so I think those are kind of the creative aspects I've seen behind it. And I, I like that. I like the development of the, the UI, the user interface, because I want it to be easy. I like it. I like it when things are easy for me to use. And so I want to, I want to, you know, continue that on for whoever else uses the program that we're developing at Voxel too. Amazing. I mean, that definitely is, um, you know, UI, UX. We, when we talk about it as user interface or user experience, we're assuming that what is the, the reference there is a software as some kind of digital inter- interface, but our lives are so mediated by digital tools that it's almost as the way we are now interacting and interfacing with life itself. I mean, we are, we are so much on our apps, so much on our phones and devices that they are a parallel um, environment of existence. You know, I won't say reality, which is not that, but you are really invested consciously in those experiences. And so, you know, UI and UX is not just how you relate with the software, but with life itself, with the reality itself that we're in. But to return um, to Natasha, I, you know, what I, what I want to understand now and want others to understand is what is the what is the breakthrough? You know, what gives us the ability to do something um, this complex on a level that, you know, maybe there are other things that, that are comparable, but it's something that does seem, I mean, we're talking about the brain after all. We're talking about this this structure that in certain ways is the most complex structure in the universe. You know, if you're counting the, the number of synapses or whatever the those measures are that you get these kinds of weird statements that sound kind of true. Um, so you're, you're created a, a technology that is allowing us to create these real-time maps of the brain, which is also an interesting idea of, you know, presenting you guys as, as explorers, you know, you're exploring this realm. Um, but what is it about the technology that enables you to, to do this incredibly powerful, powerful thing and to do it on a commercial level as well? Right. So, so, and I think, I think a lot of what made all of this possible is just the advent of so many AI um, new AI tools. So mm-hmm. for, for us and other people trying to write software to help radiologists, um, what, one of the big things is that I, it, a few years ago, that would not not have been possible. Um, and, and so now you see in the last few years, sort of a, an, an explosion of, oh, wow, we can, use, we can use AI to actually try to figure these things out and really help um, but but then but then even within within AI and within radiology, there, as I said before, there's a bunch of subspecialties, and, and and kids are a very particular 
subset of radiology and, and mm. the brain evolves very fast. There's, there's all sorts of changes. So for us, what really helped is that, um, first of all, we, we've been working on kids for a long time and that, that really makes a big difference. So a lot of people are developing software for adults. There's very few that are, or many fewer that are developing stuff for kids. So we, we just had, you know, and we're, we're in a children's hospital. So we have access to specialists. We have access to data. We, we have access to, to all these different things that just sort of make us better placed than, than perhaps other people to, to just kind of understand and, and understand what exactly it is in children's brain. Like what, what do you, what do we need to measure? What, what do radiologists care about to measure? Um, you know, what do clinicians care about? Uh, and, and all those things. So that, that was one of the big things. And then the other thing is we, we also, uh, we're very lucky to, to have access to, to different data sets that other people did not have access to. So we have the ones at, at Children's Hospital. And then also we have our CSO who has a huge database of uh, normal children. So, so to understand when, when, a, child, when a child is uh, sick, you have to know what it looks like when they're not, right? And so we mm-hmm. have this, we're, we're, we have this very large database of normal, healthy children and uh, of MRIs of normal, healthy children. And, and so we're, we, we're, we have that, that we can use also for comparison. And so that that's been very, very useful for us. So, so all of these things together make it so that we we're, we feel uh, well-placed to do this. I mean, the, the other thing also is that children's brains are very complicated and there's not that many children uh, who luckily there's not quite as many children who have uh, problems than, than compared to adults. So um, so, so what, so the other thing is it's a smaller market and it's more complicated. So the, there's also a little bit less of a push to, uh, to solve this problem from, mm. a, from the commercial side of things. Yeah. Um, just sort of just, you know, being brutally business, businessy, you know, like the, there's, there's just, <laughs> and so, and so we've had discussions with the FDA, for example, where, where they were really excited about our product because, um, you know, they, they, and they really wanted us to very much focus on the pediatric side because that's the side where they see a need also. And, and, uh, where there's to some extent less competition because it's a smaller market and thank God it's a smaller market. I mean, it's, it's great that, you know, obviously that, that kids are getting, uh, you know, have less of these problems than, than adults do, but, um, but, but anyway, yeah. So that, that's where we see our niche and our strength. Mm-hmm. So um, you'd mentioned that a few years back, it would not have been possible to create this kind of software for to do what radiologists needed to do. Um, mm-hmm. Why? Why not? Why? What was it that, that AI brings to the table that unlocked that that impossibility and made it something that could be done? Just gives better results. <laughs> it just, it, it, you know, we we've tried doing these things with with more traditional methods, and and they're they're fine until until you know if you have everything perfect, like if you have a brain that's exactly what what your code is is built for, exactly with, with everything with, with you know with everything the same as what you've what you what you've uh, tested it on and all the stuff with, mm-hmm. with AI you have a lot more flexibility one to one it works better and secondly you know when when you see that you have a new case you can just uh train your AI to to work on these on these different types of of um brain brain disorders or brain problem and, and you just just retrain it basically. And, and, uh, I mean, I'm making it sound like a lot easier than it actually is, but, (laughs) but, 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 but the point is that, that it's a, it's a lot more flexible in, in, in a lot of ways to, to sort of get, um, sort of have your code evolve, I guess, and Mm -hmm. less static because you can, so you can train it more. And I don't know if Nirika wants to add to what I just said. Nirika? Well, maybe, uh, maybe Justin, what's your take on that? How, what, what, what role? I mean, you are someone who actually writes code, um, mm-hmm. um, perhaps in, in addition to the, the rest of you, I'm not sure if it's a good question we should go into, but, um, as someone who, who does write code, um, what role have you seen AI play in the evolution of these kinds of technologies in the space that you're in? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I mean, like, 
like Natasha was saying, so some of the tools we have, we can do what we would call auto contouring. So it would, it would, you know, recognize certain structures like bones based upon like how it, uh, how bright it is on an image, like a CT scan or something like that. But these are imperfect, right? Because all it is is just looking at a single pixel and how bright or dark it is and then determining if it should draw a line there or not. But with like she's saying of AI becomes so much more flexible. It's no longer just a pixel. It's what exactly is the dimensions or the shape of the thing I'm drawing and the flexibility of like, you know, if even if it's a little bit off a little bit here, the AI can adapt to those kinds of things, you know. Like we as a human minds, we can see things, we adapt to how our environment changes and we we alter our you know, our habits and things like that based on the environment we're in. Mm -hmm. And so if AI does kind of the same thing, even though something's a little bit off in an image or something, the AI knows be like, okay, it's similar enough that I can go ahead and do what I need to do to draw the imaging in. Mm -hmm. And that's powerful because, you know, AI was in its infancy like 10 years ago and now we're seeing these advents of algorithms and things that are coming in and it's like they're they're morphing they're evolving and you know ai i think i think the definition of ai has definitely changed we're no longer talking about like a human consciousness kind of thing mm-hmm. but we are talking about code that adapts to what is given to it um, right. you know even though it may be a specific use case or things like that it at least can adapt to the purpose we've we've put it to and that's powerful mm-hmm. even if it is just for one thing even if it's just for brains like this is very powerful to us and in the clinical world it helps because you know <clears throat> taking some of that thought process out of the equation when it comes to a clinical decision will can sometimes reduce the emotional responses and the biases that could be in there and then it makes for a better clinical decision in the end. Mm. And that's what we want. We really want just what's best for our patients, right? right? And I think the AI is a very powerful tool to help us do those kinds of things. I know, I think IBM had something a long time ago about, you know, doing, uh, taking into account an entire patient's profile and then saying, this is what you should do, or these are the diagnosis that it would come mm-hmm. up with kind of thing. But I don't think it was as advanced or, or could morph into what it needed to be so i'm liking this kind of it is segmented in a way because we're we're just focusing on the brain but i i think it's better that way because then mm-hmm. we have one thing we make it really good and then everything kind of modulizes together so how do you guys i mean given that you're you're essentially painting the picture of what's happening in that brain that's being scanned and like you're just saying justin you're the ai is able to essentially lend a hand and to complete structures based. I mean, it's, it sounds like this would be a gross simplification, but almost like a process of inference where the AI is able to draw certain conclusions that are reliable. Um, So my question in that sense is how do you, how does it manage error? How do you, if this is what's being created as um, the reality of this brain, how do we know that, what's being shown is really reflecting that that physical reality because the the doctor's role and the radiologist's role in that case would just be to sort of act on the information or or almost translate it into you know whatever he might be translating to pass it along down the 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 line of of the healthcare chain so so i think yeah i i mean there's a lot of different points in, in what you're saying right now but one of the things that I think, and you you mentioned before, uh, diagnosis. We're we're an aid to diagnosis and not a diagnosis tool. That's a very important distinction. I mean, maybe a bit too technical for, but for for FDA, that that makes a, a huge difference for us. But uh, uh, so so one of the things is we're not eliminating the radiologist. In fact, we really want the radiologist to be there and to look at what we're doing and to say, you know, okay, yeah, that this this image is, is, you know, mapped properly. So, so they do see what we're, what we've done and they can actually say whether, 
the software acted properly or not. So, so there, and, and then, and then if it doesn't, then, then they just report and, and then we, we re, retrain based on what, what they tell us. So mm-hmm. this is not, um, this is not operating on its own without the radiologist. We're really not at anywhere near that point. Um, and, and, yeah. uh, Near, yeah, so, sorry. yeah, sorry. I just wanted to add. Yeah, I, I just wanted to emphasize that we're we're really trying to add an you know an objective measure here. So um so you know so that like it, regardless of who looks at it, they would have the same information in and the, that can be incorporated into the decision making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, you know, and also kind of illustrates a, an interesting model for the use of AI, which is a collaborative model where the AI is not replacing, because that's a lot of the, the discussion in the culture today about AI, which is that either it's going to replace us or it's going to annihilate us <laughs> or both. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard. Um, I mean, I think it's 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 not, we are not anywhere close to, <laughs> to being replaced by AI because you know, at, at the at the end of the day, like we are the ones who are training the AI, um, and yeah, and in terms of um, you know, at, at the end of the day, like we we do we do trust you know the physicians and the doctors <laughs> today to yeah. make that final decision. Yeah, so our, our goal is to just help them make the best decision that they can. Yeah, yeah. I guess to put it in a or I would say I, I, I want to say it like this in, in kind of a creative fictional aspect. You know how we talk about the future in cyborgs, how we have like implants and things like that. I I would say this is something like an external implant, right? Mm-hmm. It it tells you, it it monitors a lot of the things for you, but ultimately it's still you who makes the ultimate decision of what happens in the end, right? You're still mm-hmm. responsible for the conclusion. So it's an um, yeah, like uh, I guess like Natasha and Erika said, this is an enhancement to the process or to to whatever clinical decision is being made versus a, a replacement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I think that that does you know presents that a very interesting model, and I think it's one we could think about, um, you know, even in media, which is something that I'm that I focus on, um, which is thinking through how technology can really be integrated into news making and news gathering. Um, and in, in a more, so that it would not, we would not replace journalists with sensors, but, and I mean sensors as in the kinds of things that detect things, not the government type, um, <laughs> but not to replace journalists with sensors, but to, but to give them the aid of tools like that, so that it's no longer relying on, um, in, the, in the case of journalism, relying on a witness or two witnesses out of, let's say, 100 possible witnesses, and the two of them that you happen to grab are hopefully going to be reliable without you knowing anything about them. Um, we could just think in journalism that these two people that you've gotten to comment on a major story could have um, other kinds of motivations and interests. They could have problems with their own like sense perception. Maybe they have mental illness or neurological illness. We don't know. We're just trusting those two people as being reliable because that they, because the fact that they are witnesses. Whereas you think if you are looking at what you guys are doing is giving people um, extremely advanced technological tools as aids to the rest of the process that kind of how I think helps people close the circle and be to say, this is not mystical. It's not sci-fi. It's what we've always done, but on, you know, it's kind of the, the next level up in terms of sophistication. Yeah, Uh, no, absolutely. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not uh, what we see in movies. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. not like a scary, scary uh, cyborg. Like you said, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really just helping helping everyone, helping, helping radiologists, helping clinicians. So, you know, if you're thinking about, let's say in in a specific level, um, a world in which what you're doing specifically is, you know, you, you have fulfilled your vision for this, for this business, or at least for this product, what does that world look like? And for that, for the broader world of let's say taking the model of what you're doing, which is using AI and other advanced technologies to improve in this case, imaging or even in a bigger sense you know the the wider world of 
medicine and health. What does that world look like? But let's start with the specific. What does your world look like when with a fulfilled vision? Well, I, I think I prefer to answer the sort of the more general vision because it's not sure. just us. It's it's you know a, a lot of other startups and, and companies and, and the bigger companies writing software for radiologists. And I think <clears throat> it's more of a global view that in the future. What, what we're hoping in the next, let's say, 10 years uh, um, is to have radiologists be able to, um, you know, use all these software, not have to do so the, what, what now they're spending a lot of time doing is grunt work, which is, I mean, it's not grunt work, it's very specialized work, it's very difficult. But right now, you know, they spend so much time just flipping through images. And, and I'm sure you know from, from your dad. And, and, um, and, and so to, to uh, instead have, um, you know, have them be more involved in then the decision making of, um, you know, like, okay, so I've seen this case, I've seen this types of case a lot of times before we think that, or I think that you guys should do this and that treatment based on the many images I've seen in, in that, that look like, so, so, so having the radiologist spend more time on the, um, uh, what what to do side and less and having them not have to spend so much time trying to decode what's in the image mm-hmm. that makes sense so that that would be sort of the more long-term thing just just empowering empowering the radiologist to do more of of you know the more more of that that other stuff to work smarter rather than harder as they say yes. um that makes sense and and um and what do you guys see, Justin and Narika, in, in your from your perspective of this industry and the changes that you're seeing in in, um, in the field? Well, I would say that <clears throat> the world I imagine, if this if this everything kind of goes to plan, is that the enhancement of the diagnostics and the way we can you know do this and treat things is that. We have kids who are treated with radiation who live longer, healthier, more fulfilling lives. And then, on um, you know, with the actual like diagnostics, we're no longer trying to guess what is happening with a patient. We actually can have an objective, like known finding. And, and that helps with treating a patient because now we know what it is and we can actually give them a very good treatment for what mm-hmm. is ailing them. So I, I, the world I see is not one where, again, we're not replacing anybody, but one where we've come so far that, you know, the questions, we're no longer trying to answer the questions we're trying to answer today of what is the outcome of this? What is the outcome of this kind of treatment and things like that? We now know all these outcomes and we can concentrate on bigger questions like how do we even stop cancer in the first place? You know, those kinds of things. And I, that's where I see the world moving forward is that if we can get this problem solved, we can move on to bigger, better. Great. Thank you. That's, um, that's, it's a vision I've, I've heard expressed before, um, particularly in people who study and treat cancer that there is now a horizon for thinking about cancer completely differently rather than just triage, um, but to actually go at the root causes, which is incredible, incredible vision. Um, and for you, Narika, what do you see? How do you see the world with the vision of Voxel fulfilled or your own personal take on it? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I agree with uh, Justin and Tasha a lot, but I feel like AI is AI is going to keep uh, playing a bigger role. And I'm particularly excited about, you know, the explainable AI um, mm-hmm. part of things. So, you know, using AI, like we get our results, um, you know, using a lot of AI, but right now a lot of it is a black box. We don't really know what's going on, but with um you know newer algorithms we are also being we are also able to see like what what is it that the ai is detecting um and i think knowing those you know like what patterns is it recognizing right like so by understanding what those patterns are i think we can you know um the the world is going to move forward to more like targeted treatments and you know targeted diagnosis and things like that i think i think for me like that's something that's so powerful and exciting um you know moving forward and i hope that you know we be able at voxel we'd be able to utilize that as well um in the future 
Amazing. Well, thank you all um, for joining me. And we'll be looking forward to seeing how this progresses and what it does in the world. And in the meantime, um, you know, I, I would direct people to check out your website, where there's a good amount of information, which is voxelhealthcare.com. And that's V-O-X-E-L healthcare.com. Um, and if there's anywhere else that people should go learn more about you, about your company, about um, more than you and your company, about the field that you're working in, um, please let us know. We'll be happy to, I'm sure people want to know more about this stuff. So any, any recommended destinations online or offline? Um, yeah, no, the, the website is definitely a good place to start. I'd also uh, say if people want to contact us, we're, we're fairly um, open to, you know, we'd love to talk to whoever um, is interested in, in learning more. So feel free, feel free to write to us. There's an address on the website. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think that that's a, that's a good starting starting point. So, and, and if you're interested on the research side, also feel free to write to us from the research point of view. Um, we're, we're all at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, so we're, we're easy to find. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And then um, as and another thing is CHLA has a good YouTube site. So if like you want to <laughs> look at the YouTube stuff there, radi- our Mind Department Radiation Oncology, we've posted a few fun videos up there too mm-hmm. of like the actual mach- radiation treatment machine. So if people are like interested in those kinds of things too, you know, check it out. We have a lot of fun, cool things for children there too. Great. And for people out there, that's chla.org. O-R-G. Um, well, excellent. Thank you all for joining me. And um, we'll, we will keep everyone updated as to your progress and we'll be eager to hear more. So thank you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on the Burning Castle podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Rinsberg, A-S-H-L-E-Y-R-I-N-D-S-B-E-R-G. And follow the podcast on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Till next time.